Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 24 verses 1 to 22 and can be found on page 296 in the Pew Bibles. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift up my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom the king of Israel has sorry, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? He wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe, wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. The second reading can be found on page 967, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, You are the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Joe, thank you very much indeed for reading. Let me encourage you to turn back uh, to the first of the two readings that Joe has read for us, 1 Samuel chapter 24, page 296. And uh, something else you might like to do while you're doing that is to dig out the the little handout, uh, the sermon outline uh, that uh, has been put inside your bundle as you came in. And then with Bible and um, possibly sermon outline in hand, let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that as we come to this story, this in some ways slightly unusual story in your word, the Bible, we pray that you'd help us to understand it and see what it means for us today. We thank you that this book written all those years ago is as relevant today for us as it was then. And so we ask you by your Holy Spirit to speak to us and indeed where necessary to challenge and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was uh, much talk about uh, leadership in the run-up to the general election. And so in these last weeks, we've been turning to the Bible and particularly to the book of 1 Samuel to see why following Jesus Christ as our leader is the best way we could ever, as it were, cast our vote. Uh, Over these last weeks uh, in the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen that David is the Lord's anointed, literally the Christ. And so in David, we have a picture of the Christ Jesus. David, as we've seen in these weeks, is being hunted down by Saul. Saul is the king that the people wanted because they wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to follow the world's ways. And so Saul represents worldly leadership, leadership that has rejected God. And what's more, in wanted to destroy David, the Christ, Saul is the anti-Christ. We've seen all this in these last weeks. Now as we join chapter 24, Saul's relentless pursuit of David resulted in David taking to the hills, to the, to the wilderness. Uh, really from chapter 23 right through to chapter 26, we're told 11 times that David is in the desert. I've put the references on the handout for you. And it's how our chapter begins. Chapter 24 verse 1, David is in the desert of Engedi. Here then is the Lord's Christ in the wilderness, and in this chapter we'll see him being tempted, tempted to grasp for the kingdom. It all points us towards the Christ, the Lord Jesus, who, 
as you remember, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert and was tempted by Satan. Now, we've just had this reading uh, by Joe. In Matthew's Gospel, we read, The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. It was the temptation to take the kingdom of the world without any pain and suffering, to not go to the cross, just to take the, 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 the kingdom. It is a very tempting offer. Who doesn't want everything this world affords without having to suffer for it? I know I would. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 24 tells us about a day when David could easily have made his path to the throne quick and easy. We come to our first point on the handout. David in the cave, resisting the temptation to grasp for the kingdom, verses 1 to 7. The chapter begins with Saul's, uh, Saul back on the hunt for David, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men, all from Israel, and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Uh, It's where we left the story last week at the end of chapter 23. Uh, Saul was inches away from seizing David when word came to him of a Philistine invasion of the land. So he set off immediately to deal with the Philistines. Now here we are a few days or weeks later, we don't know how long. But Saul and his army have dealt with the Philistine threat and now Saul is back on the hunt for David. David and his men are hiding up in the craggy hills overlooking the Dead Sea. But despite their best efforts to hide, Saul has intelligence about David's whereabouts and he's after him again. In verse 2, Saul took 3,000 men to Wild Goat's Rock. David, you'll remember from the previous chapter, has just 600 men. That's a five to one advantage in Saul's favour. And what's more, Saul has crack troops, trained leader soldiers. Saul's army has just defeated the Philistines. They're good. David, on the other hand, do you remember how his followers were described back in chapter 22, verse 2? They were distressed, in debt, and discontented, hardly the stuff of military might. They were a rag-bag bunch of no-hopers. So clearly the odds aren't great for David. Until verse 3. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David's men were in the far back in the cave. Saul, the king of the mighty military leader of Israel, needed a poo. Now that's the sort of thing you don't expect the preacher to say very often. Saul, I'm going to say it again, Saul needed a poo. So he left his 3,000 strong army and went to a nearby cave to do his business. And lo and behold, he just happened to choose the exact cave where David and his men were hiding, deep in the back of the cave. Now, at this point, schoolboy humour could easily take over. The 600 men were following, who were following David could have started to giggle uncontrollably as the king dropped his trousers. But as funny as we might find it, remember their lives were in danger. Saul had a mighty army nearby. Now, John Woodhouse writes, and I've put the quote on the handout, it was a tense moment of uncertainty. Picture the scene. The army outside the cave, armed and dangerous. David and his gang huddled in the darkness of the cave, hidden and no uh, no doubt more than a little nervous. 
And between the two, a short distance into the cave, Saul with his pants down. It's hilarious and yet deadly serious all at the same time. So deep in the the cave, there were whispers. But it wasn't David's men sniggering at Saul's expense. No, the whispers were David's men urging David to kill Saul. Verse 4, they saw this as a God-given opportunity. In all the caves, in all the En Gedi region, Saul chose that one to do a poo. For David's men, this was no coincidence. They saw it as a God-given opportunity. Saul was in an extremely vulnerable position with his pants down. And this was David's chance to kill King Saul and to be crowned king. Verse 4, the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands, for you are to deal with as you wish. So, end of verse 4, David crept up unnoticed and cut off Saul's head. No, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, this is very significant for a number of reasons. First, as we'll see in a moment, it was proof that David got close enough to have killed Saul. Second, it was, a, it, it, it was a, a, a section of the royal robe that David cut off. And that is highly significant because of, in 1 Samuel, the robe has been a symbol of the kingdom. Now, again, you'll see the references on the handout. In chapter 15, verses 27 and 28, a robe was torn and Samuel told Saul that it was a picture of his kingdom being torn from him. In chapter 18, verse 4, Jonathan, the crown prince, took off his robe and gave it to David as a symbol that David would be the next king. The robe was a symbol of the kingdom. So cutting off a corner of Saul's robe was highly symbolic and significant. And we see that in David's reaction in verse 5. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. That is a surprise, isn't it? David had the chance to kill Saul, but he didn't. So you thought his his conscience would be clear. But no, David was conscience-stricken because symbolically, by cutting off the royal robe, he'd laid claim to the kingdom. But David had always been completely loyal to the king. It wasn't enough that he hadn't killed him. He deeply regretted doing something that could even be seen as a hint that he intended to take the kingdom from Saul. So, verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he's the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. That is a kind of a play on words here David tore a strip off his men for suggesting that he should tear the kingdom from Saul listen again to John Woodhouse and the quote is over the page on the handout David understood that the kingdom which would certainly be on his uh, would be his one day was not for him to take by his own power the kingdom had been given to Saul by God in this sense he is the Lord's anointed And it was up to God to take it from him in his own time and in his own way. I think that's very helpful. God had said today that David would inherit the kingdom. And David needed to trust God's word in that. Again, here we see echoes of great King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. 
he too has been promised by his father that one day he would rule all things in heaven and on earth. And so when the devil tempted Jesus to take what one day would be his, to take what God had promised to him, but to take it without having to go through all the pain and suffering of the cross, the temptation must have been very great indeed. And it is a temptation that comes to us too. While we're not the Lord's anointed and we've not been given the promise that we will one day be king of the universe, still as those who follow the king, we have been told that we will reign with him, that we will be co-inheritors with him, reigning with him in the new heavens and the new earth, inheriting everything one day. You see, when you know that, I don't know about you, but I feel the temptation to want to take it all now. Or at least to take as much as I can get now. It is the great pull of materialism. I certainly feel the temptation to have everything I want without any amount of struggle or difficulty, without any pain. Offer me a wealth of uh, a life of wealth and extravagant luxury and success without any trouble, and I take it like a shot. Does not an easy life of luxury without pains sound like heaven? Now that's the point. It is the promise of heaven. It's not for now. For you see, if I do grab for it now, I can only get it at the expense of others. And that is where Jesus is so remarkable and why he's such a brilliant leader to follow. He wouldn't take something at the expense of others. He doesn't grasp for power. He looks out for others wants the best for others. That's why we can trust Jesus. He is not power crazy. He doesn't think of himself first. Instead, he is so other person focused, he even loves his enemies. And he loves his enemies so much that he laid his life down for them. And we see a glimpse of that in what happens next. So from David in the cave to secondly David's speech, loving his enemy even when it could cost him his life, verses 8 to 15. We've just seen that David didn't call, uh, kill Saul when he had the chance. But there's nothing unique about that. I know tons of people who wouldn't kill their enemies. What is outstanding is what we see next. For David actually reaches out to his enemy and puts his life at risk in the process. See, what followed next was a daring move. We've already seen that Saul had 3,000 fighting men, David only 600. Yet David stepped out of the cave as Saul left, and he called out to Saul, verse 8. My Lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. See, it was a daring and potentially dangerous move. If Saul wouldn't listen to David... He might well call his troops and in no time at all, David and his men would be trapped in the cave with a mighty army waiting outside for them. What comes next is a brilliant speech. I know whether you remember this film, it's it's quite old. I've got a VHS uh, version of it here, Gladiator. Russell Crowe was uh, uh, was the main man, was the gladiator. There are some great moments of action in this film. But one of the most memorable moments is not a battle scene at all, but it's a speech by the gladiator. Do you remember it? My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, 
and loyal servant to the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I've always wanted to say that to a big group. Thanks very much indeed. It is a gripping moment in the film. There's no fighting. There's no action. It's just a speech. But for me, it is a highly charged moment in the film. Now, it's that kind of speech that we read next in verses 9 to 15. So let me read it. And as I do, note, note that unlike Maximus, David's is not a speech threatening Saul with vengeance and justice. No, here David speaks to his enemy words of great loving kindness. Verse 9. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. It's a brilliant speech. And as he speaks, David holds up the piece of Saul's robe to prove that he could have killed Saul when he was in the cave. And he holds up the piece of the robe to prove that he means him no harm. He is not leading a rebellion against Saul. As John Woodhouse wrote again, the quote is on here. If David was holding the symbol of the kingdom in his hands, he was also holding the symbol of his innocence, his faithfulness, and his kindness towards Saul. He says in verse 14, I'm no threat to you, Saul. I'm no more a threat to you than a dead dog or a flea. David is proving that he has shown his enemy great mercy and loving kindness. And here is why David didn't take the easy route to the kingdom. He wants to show kindness and love to his enemy. And he will even risk his life to do it going out of the cave and making this impassioned speech. Once again, it all points us towards the Christ, the Lord Jesus. As we've already seen, he wouldn't take the quick route to the kingdom. Instead, he went the way of suffering. He went to the cross. And he took that that route, that route to the cross, not, not just risking his life for his enemies, but laying down his life for his enemies. He took the painful route of suffering to die on a cross so that even his enemies could be forgiven. It is the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why I'm a Christian. We have all rebelled against God. None of us live God's way. We're all part of a rebellion against God and his kingdom. We are all enemies of God. The Bible calls it sin. But listen to these words from the Bible. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. 
Jesus lays down his life for his enemies to make us his friends. And once we are followers of the Christ, he asks us to do the same. So Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, understood that. He wrote, Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. What's the example? He committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He has given us an example to follow. We are to love our enemies just as Jesus did. We're to love those who even hate us with the desire that they too will come to Jesus Christ to be forgiven. And if we're to love even those who hate us that much, that means everyone else in between even those we feel a bit irritated with. But how many of us can't even be bothered to love people that way? How can we do it? Well, we know that God will bring justice eventually. Peter said it. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And exactly what we see David doing here, verse 12, he entrusts himself to the Lord who would judge justly. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. David in the cave, resisting the temptation to grasp from the kingdom. Secondly, David's speech, loving his enemy, even when it could cost him his life. And thirdly and briefly, Saul's response, melted by the grace of the Christ. Verses 16 to 21. The chapter ends with Saul's responding to David's speech. You see verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Saul's first words are remarkable, calling David his son. Having been hell bent on killing David, here is Saul using a term of endearment to describe David. And then we see him weeping. There's been plenty of stuff in the news this week about grown men crying. Dick Advoca, the interim manager of Sunderland Football Club, couldn't fight back the tears on Wednesday night when Sunderland got a point from a nil-nil draw with Arsenal, securing their premiership survival. Men crying is very topical. Well, look, here's Saul, the mighty military man, hard as nails, weeping. He might have been reduced to tears because he realised how close he'd come to death. This was his premiership survival. Maybe he wept because his, coincident, because his conscience had been pricked as he realised how wicked he'd been towards David. Or maybe the tears flowed because he realised that he couldn't stop David becoming king now. See, he mentions all three things. He certainly realised how good, gracious and merciful David had been to him, verse 17. You are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. And he certainly realised how close he'd come to death, verse 18. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. And Saul also acknowledged that the Lord would make, him, make David king one day, verse 20. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. What a moment. Saul admitted that David was the Lord's anointed and he didn't say it under duress. These words weren't spoken through clenched teeth and with a sword up against his throat. No, he said these words willingly. These words came off Saul's lips because David the Christ had shown Saul such kindness and grace. Grace. 
You see, when people meet the Lord's Christ, when they see what he's really like, it changes them. Meet the real Jesus, the one who loves even his enemies and who loves his enemies enough to die for them. When people meet the real Jesus, it does often melt the hearts of of his most strident opponents. There are dozens of stories throughout history of people who've been aggressively anti-Christ, then being completely turned around by the loving kindness of the one who loves them enough to die for them. But it's not just a thing of the past. I've seen it with my own eyes in the last few months. I think of a man I met, I don't know, six or seven years ago. He sat in my study and said firmly, but politely, I'm not interested in organised religion. After that, he, he, some years later, told his family he didn't want them to go to church anymore, didn't want them exposed to the teaching of the church. But then he agreed to attend the Reason for God course that we run, and then the Christianity Explored course. And as the Bible was opened up, and as he met Jesus Christ, as it were, walking off the pages of Mark's Gospel, he met the Christ who loves his enemies, the Christ who loves him and who loved him enough to die for him. And his heart has been melted and he's become a wholehearted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about religion here. This is about being introduced to a person, Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived. The one who loves us even though we want nothing to do with him. The one who loves us even when we're actively against him. And that love melts hearts, even the hardest hearts. It melted Saul's heart, but sadly, only for a while. It's not quite the fairy tale ending with Saul that we might have wanted, and we'll see that next week. But today, if your heart has begun to be melted by the Christ who loves you enough to die for you, embrace the forgiveness he offers you. Come back to the one who loves you. He is a leader to follow, a leader who doesn't grasp for glory, a leader who's ready to suffer for others, even willing to die for his enemies. Follow him because he is for you and he will show you grace and mercy and great loving kindness. The vast majority of us here already do follow him. And here's the challenge for us from this passage today. As our hearts have been, I trust, melted by this King Jesus who lays down his life for his enemies, we must be willing to do the same. Not to grasp for a life of comfort and ease. Not to try and bypass suffering. But to be willing to suffer even for our enemies, for their good. For the ultimate good of others coming to know for themselves the Christ who is full of grace and mercy and great loving kindness. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, that you are this kind of God not one who is bound up with himself, but one who is so uh, bothered for others, so other person focused, 
so loving that you will send your son to die, to lay down his life that we may be forgiven. We ask this truth to grab us again, to melt our hearts, and for those of us who already follow you, to make us those who follow him that way, loving our enemies even when it costs us for their good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.